Hello, hello ladies, good morning. It is so good to see all of you. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being a part of our study. Nothing I like better than to come and study God's Word with other women. I love that. I'm Deb Haygood. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. It's an honor to be here uh, with all of you today. And by the way, I just want to say thank you for all of you that have lifted me up in prayer this week, that have prayed for this lesson. I appreciate those prayers. In fact, all the teachers appreciate the prayers that you lift up on their behalf. So thank you, thank you very much. And what a great book to be studying, Romans. It's a letter written by Paul, so rich and thought-provoking and organized as he goes from one truth to the next. And that's what's gonna happen today. He's going to go from the bad news to the good news. And before we get started, I want to um, give you a bad news, good news story. You know, we all love good news. I'm going on a beach vacation. Well, not really, but that's an example. It would be good news if I was, but... um, Someone might say, uh, I'm getting married, or I'm graduating, or I got a promotion. We love good news, but good news is really good when it follows bad news. So, let me tell you a story. Happened to my husband, Scott, several years ago. He had severe abdominal pain. And so I took him to the emergency room, and after some tests and x-rays, the doctor came in and said, well, bad news. His colon is twisted, and we need to take him straight into surgery. And then he began to give me the details of what he was going to do. I'll spare you. And then he said, after he heals up in about six weeks, we'll take him back into surgery, and we will fix those things. And I'm shocked. Two surgeries? But before I can say anything, he, they have whisked Scott off into surgery. And so I begin to pray, Lord, Lord, heal Scott, be with Scott. Um, help this surgeon, Lord, to use his very best skill on Scott. Um, heal him. After a couple hours, the doctor comes out and he has a smile and he says, good news. I was able to go in there and do more details. And after a few days in the hospital, he's going to be fine. And I said, good. Well, and when do we come back for the second surgery? And he goes, oh no, I was able to do everything. I was able to fix it all. He is going to be fine. We do not need another surgery. Good news. I just like what? And I just jumped on, hugged him. He was like, anyway, it's really good news when it comes after bad news. And that's exactly what Paul has been doing in these first chapters of Romans. Right after that introduction in uh, first few verses of Romans 1, Paul goes right into giving us some very bad news. We are all wretched sinners. Every one of us, no exceptions. We are unholy, unrighteous, deserving God's wrath. Death, we deserve judgment from our holy, righteous God. Now, we might say, uh, well, my wrongdoing isn't as bad as the next person. I haven't murdered anyone, haven't robbed a bank lately. But Misty told us, no, Um, big sin, little sin, I am still a sinner. I'm unrighteous and unable to be in a relationship with our holy God, and there is nothing I can do to make myself right with God. 
Sometimes we, we want to try. We think we can. I'll do better. I can work harder. I'll give up this or that. We might as well just stop. No person can be put right with God by her own effort. Paul has made a conclusive and very convincing argument. We stand before God guilty, guilty. Bad news for you and for me, really bad news. So Paul has our attention now with these opening words in uh, chapter three, verse 21. You might wanna turn there. He says, but now. And these words are gonna mark a transition. And we're thinking, but now, what are you gonna say, Paul? Uh, Our situation is hopeless. My big problem right now is how can I get into a right relationship with God? What can you say about that? Well, let's look at Paul's good news for us. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. God's righteousness is available. That is good news. Now righteousness here, it means a right relationship with God. And this is the very heart of the gospel. This is what Paul is talking about in chapter one, verses 16 and 17, that gospel message. And now with these verses uh, in chapter three, 21 through 26, Paul will explain in a very detailed way God's righteousness that is available for all. And some say these are the most important words in all of Paul's letters. In fact, Martin Luther, the great theologian and reformer from the 1500s, he says about these verses that it is the chief point and very central place of Romans and the whole Bible. Another modern day theologian I read said, if you're gonna memorize anything in the Bible, you should memorize these six verses because they are most important. And so with that, we are going to look at these verses very carefully. And first of all, with verse 21, we see the righteousness of God comes from God and it is apart from the law. Now, when we see law there, that means the commandments that God gave, those rules and directions that God gave the people in the Old Testament. And so uh, this is good news that it comes apart from the law because we've just spent the last two weeks convinced that we are unable to keep God's commandments perfectly. We can't do it no matter how much we want to, no matter how hard we try. So that's good news. Second, this is a plan of righteousness, not new plan because it has been revealed with the coming of Jesus Christ, but it has been uh, revealed in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament tells us about this plan of righteousness, which is now revealed through Jesus Christ. Paul here says the law and the prophets. That means the Old Testament scriptures. Um, The law, when it says there, that means the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was called the law. And then the prophets are the other books in the Old Testament telling about the history of Israel. So the law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament. And it says they told us about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In fact, one of those places in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53.5 on your verse sheet. 
And it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is the prophet Isaiah foretelling what would happen when the Messiah came to earth. And Jesus also tells us, Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Jesus is saying, they talked about me in the Old Testament and I have come now to fulfill it. So this is not a new plan of righteousness. Then in verse 22, we learn that this plan of righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. A person is, a, is righteous when they're in a right relationship with God. And being in a right relationship with God is available for all people. No distinction. All people, not just men, not just women, not just children or the Jewish people or the Gentiles. No, all people who believe. And believe, that's necessary. Believe means to take God at his word. It's to accept what God says as true. It's to rely on God's word. It's to trust God's word, to lean into it. As if when you're weak and you lean up against a strong brick wall, we are to rely on God's word. Accept what God says. We need to believe God. And then it says righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now faith is very similar to belief. And faith is how we appropriate the right relationship which God makes available. It's through faith. One author said faith activates our, relation, our righteousness, our right relationship with God. Faith activates it. Faith is receiving it. The righteousness of God is, avail, is available for all, but not everyone will receive it. Not everybody wants it. Not everyone puts their faith in Jesus. Righteousness is activated not by works, but by faith, believing. And then we read in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's like Paul, right in the middle of this good news, he's gonna remind us again of the bad news. Don't forget, don't forget that you are a sinner deserving of God's wrath. And then Paul defines sinning for us. He says it's falling short of God's glory, his perfection, his holiness, Many illustrations, I have one that I thought of this week. Uh, happened about a year and a half ago. My whole family, uh, Scott, kids, grandkids, we all went on a cruise, first time ever, and it was great, and the ship was really big. So big, it had a zip line from one end to the other. And of course, the grandkids wanted to go on that zip line right away. So up we go, and when we get there, there's a little measuring stick, and you have to be taller than this to get to go on the zip line. And so all the grandkids were tall enough except Harper, my youngest granddaughter, and she didn't measure up to the top of that. Even though she stood with her neck stretched out so far, she must have added two inches. She was like almost on her tiptoes. She didn't measure up. She wasn't tall enough. She was too short. And so she didn't meet the standard and she wasn't able to go on the zip line. She was too short. 
She fell short. We all need God's righteousness, you and me, because we are incapable of meeting God's standard on our own merit. We're too short. We fall short. So after this little uh, bad news, he goes on with the good news. In fact, we could put in parentheses this verse 23 because 22 kind of leads right into verse 24, the end there where it says, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What a great verse that is. This verse describes this right relationship with God. He says we're justified. Now justified, justification, it's very similar to righteousness. In fact, some people are going to use it interchangeably, but it has a little bit different meaning. Uh, Even in the Greek, these two words are spelled almost the same. Their first few letters are exactly the same. But justification means the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ and treats him as righteous. Justification is a legal term. It's a legal term. We are not made righteous. God declares us as righteous. We're in a right relationship with, uh, with him. He credits us as righteous. In fact, Warren Wiersbe says it like this. I think he says it pretty well. God puts the righteousness of Christ on our record in the place of our own sinfulness. And no one, nothing can change our record. That's good news. So justification happens once and it lasts forever. When God declares us righteous, we are righteous until we go on to be with him in glory. Now, let me just say for a second uh, uh, the word sanctification. If any one of you are thinking about that, we're going to actually talk about sanctification in two weeks with chapter 6. But sanctification, that is an ongoing process whereby God makes the believer more and more like Christ. It's an ongoing process. Justification happens once and never changes. We are justified. We are declared righteous by God, and he treats us as if we never sinned. Wow, that is a miraculous work done by God, a miraculous work. And what motivates God? Well, we see in verse 24, it's by his grace, his grace, God's grace. Grace is unmerited favor and kindness towards us. Nothing we do requires God to put us in a right relationship with him. We don't deserve God's grace. Grace is without charge. It's without strings attached. It's freely given without compulsion. It is a free gift, as it says, a free gift. Grace, what a wonderful word. Wake up every morning thinking about God's grace in your life. Verse 24 says, and it's through the redemption of Jesus Christ. Now, redemption means to set free, to liberate by paying a price. And it's a word used in Paul's day, it's a word used in commerce. Justification, legal term. Redemption, it's used in commerce and with slavery. To set free, to liberate by paying a price. And this is what God did in Christ. We are set free from our sin because Jesus paid the price. All who believe in Jesus 
are justified, we're declared right with God as a free gift of his grace through Christ Jesus. And do you notice Christ Jesus kind of switched there? Paul does that because he wants to point out that God provided the payment for our redemption. And the payment was the Messiah. And the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, a Greek word for Messiah is Christ. And that payment, Christ, who is Jesus of Nazareth. Christ Jesus. This is good news. Good news. God sets a person in a right relationship with him without anything, any payment or work on our part. It's sheer generosity of God. It is a free gift for us. Free for us, but a very costly gift for God. Because we said Jesus paid the price of our redemption. And what is that price? Look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What was the price? It was the shed blood and death of Jesus. God the Father redeems people by the costly giving of his own son who bled and died on a cross to pay the penalty of our sin, our debt. Propitiation, that's another big word. It means atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice that atones for our sin. Propitiation means the satisfying of God's holy law, the meeting of its just demands. The penalty of our sin deserves death. Jesus, sinless, perfect, obedient, his death was the perfect once and for all atoning sacrifice for our sin. And only Jesus could be that perfect sacrifice. His death satisfied our debt. Jesus is the propitiation for our debt. And it says, this is to be received by faith. By faith. Believe it. Believe in Jesus. Receive it in faith. Faith activates redemption for me personally. Your faith activates redemption for you personally. We must receive it. And we cannot receive it if we don't believe it. Next thought, why did God give his son Jesus as an atoning sacrifice? Because he loves us? He does love us, but look at what Paul says at the middle there of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul tells us he did it to show God's righteousness. Jesus' death was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins of the past. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> that, that phrase. First of all, let me tell you, forbearance means to hold back, to delay. So God left the sins that were committed in the Old Testament before Jesus' death. He left those unpunished out of grace, not out of unrighteousness. God was not unrighteous. He delayed because he anticipated the provision for judgment of sins in the death of Jesus. Jesus' sacrificial atoning death, it paid the penalty of all our sins 
before the time of Jesus' death and after the time of Jesus' death. So when Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross, and he did suffer, Jesus took on all the sin, past, present, future, all the sins of the world, and God's full wrath was towards him. When Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross for the sins of the world, Jesus fully met the demands of God's law and also fully expressed the love of God's heart. God's righteousness is not compromised. He is just. Jesus paid the price of God's judgment on sin. The perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ demonstrated God's righteous judgment over all sin. And God is the justifier. He declares us righteous. He declares us in a right relationship with him. The blood of Jesus redeems us from the bondage of Satan and sin. For whoever believes, who has faith in Jesus, this is very good news. Very good news. This is the best news that we could ever hear. Those six verses are finished, and so now Paul is going to begin to ask questions that he's anticipating uh, the Jewish and Gentile believers would have. And so he begins that in verse 27, and actually from verse 27 on through, all the way through chapter 8, he is going to be asking questions and explaining this righteousness of God. So let's look at 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So his first question here has to do with boasting. And so I automatically start thinking, well, he's talking about the Jews because Shelley told us last week how they sort of think they're in a special relationship with God. So it must be their boasting. And seriously, to be honest with you, this week I realized, hey, what about your boasting, Deb? Sometimes you can get pretty prideful in your religious activity. This might be for you. Shock. So what does it say? No boasting. No boasting, Deb, because you did nothing to obtain righteousness. It's faith. You are justified by faith, not works. And Paul's going to say this over and over in Romans. It is faith, not works. If we learn anything out of Romans, it's going to be that, faith, not works. So verse 29, next question, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So he asks here, what about God? Is he the God of Jews only? And the, and the Jews really thought of God as kind of their own personal God. Um, Paul says, no, there is only one God, one God of the whole universe, and he will justify, declare us righteous, both Jews and Gentiles. And when Paul says God is one, the Jews would immediately think of Deuteronomy 6.4 on your verse sheet, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Jews would uh, recite this verse every day. So they know 
that God is one God. God, one God, who declares righteous anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Wow, wow, consider this good news this week. Consider this good news that we can have a restored relationship with God available to, available to us through faith in the redeeming sacrifice of Jesus. This is good news. Sometimes we don't really think about this good news. I think we it becomes so home because we've heard it so many times and we're busy with other things and we sometimes forget how needy we are and we sometimes forget how generous and gracious God is to provide this relationship with him. So this week, ladies, consider the good news of a relationship with the Lord and let your heart be filled with whatever, filled with gratitude, with awe, with humility, with celebration, tell others, maybe filled with peace or joy. Consider the good news and let your heart be filled. So let's go on now and let's look at chapter four. And this is a great chapter because Paul is gonna now give us a concrete example of the abstract word faith. And we always learn better when we have an illustration to help us learn. And Abraham is a brilliant illustration for the Jews. They hold Abraham in the highest esteem. He was the founder of their race. He is a great example here. So let's begin with verse one. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So let's talk a minute about Abraham. Let's kind of have a review. His story begins in Genesis chapter 12. And uh, Abraham was called out by God. God tells Abraham, leave your country and all your big family and go to where I will lead you. And so Abraham takes only his wife, Sarah, and his nephew, Lot, and off he goes, obeying God. And God gives him three promises, three covenant promises. He says, I will make you a great nation, I will make your name great, and I will bless you. And through you, Abraham, all nations will be blessed. And that is a reference to Jesus Christ. He descends from Abraham, and he is the one through whom all nations are blessed. So, three promises, land, descendants, and blessing. And this verse that we looked at here comes from Genesis 15. I have it on your verse sheet, verses five and six. And this is about the promise of descendants. Look at what it says here. And he brought him outside and said, and this is God talking to Abraham, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was Abraham's belief that God counted as righteousness. Abraham believes God's promise. Abraham took God at his word and God declares him righteous. It is faith, taking God at his word, not works that puts righteousness of Christ in our account. It's faith. We see that here with Abraham. 
verses four through eight, I'm not gonna read those because they were fairly easy to understand. When we work, we receive wages. We get a paycheck. We don't get a gift, we get a paycheck. A gift comes usually out of someone's generosity, nothing that we have done or asked for. And Paul is saying Abraham didn't work for God's righteousness. No, he believed in God. He trusted him. He took God at his word. It's faith. It's faith. And Abraham's faith counted as righteousness. And that's the way it is for us as well. It's believing God. Believing God redeems us through the sacrifice of Jesus' death. Believing God, it's faith, not works, that puts Christ's righteousness in our account. So let's go on, look at verse nine. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Do you think I can say that word anymore? (laughs) And who would have thought we'd be talking about circumcision every week in our study of Romans? Last week we learned circumcision. It was an outward sign of God's covenant with Israel, the Jews. And so it was very important to the Jews, but it had become for them a way of righteousness. They thought circumcision was necessary for God's righteousness. It was a requirement before God could could declare someone righteous. And Paul wants to clearly point out to the Jewish believers, this is wrong. You do not need to be circumcised to receive righteousness. It is by faith and faith alone. So once again, using Abraham as as an example, he asks, when was Abraham's faith counted to him as righteousness? Was it before he was circumcised or after? Well, you go back to the scriptures and you see it was Genesis 15 where we read that Abraham believed God and God counted it as righteousness. And it's in Genesis 17, some 14 years later, when God gives Abraham the command of circumcision. He says this will be a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham, this covenant of land, seed, and blessing. So it was almost 14 years later that Abraham was circumcised. So clearly, Paul makes his point. Circumcision is not necessary to be declared righteous by God. And this is great news for the uncircumcised Gentile. Circumcision's not necessary, just faith. In fact, no outward signs are necessary for God to declare us righteous. This is the truth. No works, no religious activity is necessary for God to declare us righteous. No outward signs are necessary. This is radical righteousness of God, and it comes from God alone, and it comes through faith in Christ for all who believe. So if you're motivated to do more or be more or think to to do some works um, to get more righteousness in your account, you can't do it. You can't do it. Righteousness is given to us through faith. Faith is necessary, faith alone. 
So let's go on and look at verses 13. We're going to look at 13 through 17. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, that's the Jews, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So these verses are a little bit confusing at first, but basically they're saying that Abraham believed God's promise. It was faith. The promise came through the righteousness of faith, not the law, because he's saying they can't keep the law. We've already said that. They couldn't keep the law. We can't keep the law perfectly, no matter how hard we try. And that's why the promise depends on faith, so that it would rest on God's grace, God's grace. And it comes to pass in answer to Abraham's absolute faith. And do you notice here how Paul's emphasis on Abraham is the father of us all? The Jews are physical descendants of Abraham, but he's saying that Abraham is also our spiritual father as Gentile believers who share the faith of Abraham. Now, this is important to Paul because he wants unity between the Jewish and the Gentile believers. He wants unity. And we're going to see this theme of unity all through Romans. So be looking for it because unity is also very important to us as believers today. So God's promise was not based on the law but it rested on God's grace and it was dependent, it was uh, answered and with Abraham's absolute faith. So faith, not law. Paul has made a very um, convincing case here for faith. It's not works, it's not outward signs, it's not the law, but faith. So let's look at Abraham's faith. Look at verse 18. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That, it, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So in your study questions, you read those uh, verses in Genesis 17, and you read where Abraham was 99 years old and Sarah was 90 when God came and said, you will have a son with Sarah. So it would seem reproductively that his body was as good as dead, and Sarah, his wife, was barren. After 90 years, she has never had a child. So we would think that circumstance looks pretty hopeless. But verse 18 tells us that Abraham, in hope, he believed. Why? I think it goes back to verse 17 there where it says, God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That sounds like what we've been learning in Genesis, that chapter 1. 
God, I mean, Abraham believed that God could do what seemed hopeless. He believed God could do that. His faith didn't waver. In fact, his faith grew stronger as he believed God's word. He took God at his word and he gave glory to God. Just an aside, but um, if you have been praying for something, waiting for an answer from God for a long time and your faith might seem a little weak, Try praising God, giving God the glory, and see if your faith becomes stronger. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to keep his promise. Abraham's faith was strong, he believed in God's word, and his faith was unwavering in hopeless circumstances. He was totally convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God could do it. Abraham's faith is a great example for us today as we believe God. And so, Paul finishes up verse 23 with this great summary. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Hallelujah. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We who believe in Jesus for our justification will also be declared righteous. There's that great news, the best news. And I just want to say if there's someone here who's never really thought about this before, you've never put your faith in Jesus, but you're sitting there thinking, I believe, I believe this is true. You can just close your eyes right now and you can tell God, I believe that you declare me righteous by the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He paid the penalty for my sin. I'd love to come uh, talk to you afterwards or to anyone afterwards, leadership team, your small group leaders. I would love to talk to you about this most important decision that you will ever make. And for us as believers, let's just be reminded from this story of Abraham that nothing is too hard for God. Let's be convinced that God is able. He can do what he promises. Hold on to that. Hold on to God's word and watch your faith grow stronger. You know, John Calvin said about this chapter four of Romans, it becomes more clear now why and how Abraham's faith brought righteousness to him. It was because he depended on the word of God and did not reject the grace that God promised. This relationship between faith and God's word is to be, here's a great application. It is to be continually maintained and committed to memory. So ladies, read God's word. Read your Bible and believe it. Believe it and watch your faith grow stronger. Nothing is too hard for God. In fact, when God came to uh, Abraham and said to them, you will have a son with your wife, Sarah, it says that Sarah was eavesdropping and she laughed to herself. The Lord heard her and the Lord said to Abraham, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer is no. The next year, Sarah gave birth to a son, Isaac, nothing is too hard for God. So ladies, wholeheartedly take God at his word. Read it, believe it, and watch your faith grow stronger. God is able. Nothing is impossible with God. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, you are good, you are gracious, you are righteous and just, and you love us so much. Lord, we just thank you for these words in Romans, these life-changing words. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, for his sacrifice, dying on the cross, to pay the penalty of our sin. Thank you for that, Lord. Bless these women in this room today. I pray that we may walk out of here praising you, thanking you, thinking about how much you love us and the good news of Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.